Good evening. Hello. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the 2018 Cambridge Science Festival. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Alistair Coles and Dr. Joseph Hemming, who are going to be speaking tonight about elliptical seizures. So please give them a warm welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much and uh, welcome. We have an hour together and I just want to make a few introductory remarks and then we'll get cracking. So I'm Alistair Coles, I'm a neurologist up at the hospital, up at Adam Brooks and this is my third year in succession talking about a different neurological disease. We had multiple sclerosis and we had psychosis and today we're going to talk about some aspect of epilepsy. I want to say right from the outset that there may well be people here, there probably are people here who are affected either directly or indirectly by epilepsy and I want to make it very clear that we don't think epilepsy is a good thing. We do understand that uh, it's difficult to live with epilepsy and as you'll hear we're going to describe a very, very unusual form of epilepsy. So please don't take our remarks as applying to you or those you know with epilepsy. It's very unlikely that that is true. Secondly, I want to thank Mary Lay, who is joining us, uh, who has an unusual form of epilepsy, and she has given her permission uh, for you to hear her story. So please don't be embarrassed by the fact that she's talking about herself. She understands um, that that's what was going to happen. Uh, she's given her full permission, Mary, is that right? Just make sure we don't retract it at the last moment. So you're the star of the show, Mary. We're very grateful that you've been willing to be brave and come and share your experience. So why do we want to talk about this? Well, if you're interested in the human brain and the correlation between what the brain is doing and experience, which must be one of the hard problems in mental philosophy or psychology, then ideally what you'd like to do is take a human and take their skull off and with an electrode probe parts of the brain and ask the person under the probe what it is they're experiencing. And that would be a great way of discovering the relationship between brain activity and experience. But sadly, ethical committees <laughs> don't allow that. So we have a second best in the form of epilepsy, which is the experiment, if you don't mind me putting it like this, of someone whose brain is being stimulated in particular parts, and then they're having experiences. So talking to people with epilepsy about what it's like to have their seizures is a really useful, interesting way of studying the brain at work. So those are my introductory comments. I want to introduce Joseph Tennant to you now, who is a postdoctoral researcher who's researching this thing. He's come over from the United States, escaping <coughs> Mr. Trump, to be with us in Cambridge for a few years. So, Joseph. Great. Uh, thank you for so much for having us here today. Um, so, I wanted to talk a bit about uh, some of the literature relating to mystical experience and mystical experience in epilepsy. Um, I recognize that that's sort of an intimidating subject in some way. So, before we get into that, I wanted to give you a bit of an introduction to epilepsy generally. I know this was something I was nervous about about this project coming into it, and so we're gonna demystify a little bit for you. Now, epilepsy is a, actually a very simple thing to define in one sense. It's simply 
the tendency to have seizures, about two or more seizures per year unprovoked. And what that means is it's not due to a clear drug interaction, but is rather originating in the brain in some way. Um, what is a seizure? Uh, a definition I have found useful is a transient occurrence of signs or symptoms due to abnormal excessive or synchronous neuroactivity in the brain. There's a much easier way to say this, is that your brain begins to fire regularly, but it fires in consistent patterns, and as a consequence, you see the activities that are associated with those brain areas occur in people either physically or experientially. It's actually more straightforward than it looks on this little definition. Um, that's a very broad definition, as you can imagine. So as a consequence, epilepsy is the most common neurological disease in the world. An, esti an estimated 50 million people suffer from epilepsy worldwide. Um, because so many things are under the epilepsy umbrella, seizures are generally the best, our seizure categorization, I should say, is the best way to sort of figure out who is, is under what, uh, what camp of epilepsy. And there's a couple of categories we use that are of value. So we have the origination of the seizures, or the focal or generalized. A focal seizure is a seizure that originates in one part of the brain, or at least one side of the brain, one hemisphere, whereas generalized seizures are those that are engaging both hemispheres of the brain simultaneously, either starting simultaneously or beginning as a focal seizure and then generalizing across the whole brain. Uh, other things that we consider in epilepsy are the uh, physical movements or convulsions. So you often see a tonic seizure, which is the stiffening of the body, uh, the clonic, which is the movements that are often associated with. I think for many people, the generalized tonic-clonic seizure is what you imagine when you are, or think of epilepsy. Person rigidly stiffening up, falling to the ground, shaking. Does that sound about what people were imagining? Yeah. So there is a lot of other things that go on in epilepsy too. Specifically for our project, these experiential auras. So um, many times in focal epilepsy in particular, people will experience unusual sensations alongside seizure and oftentimes experience them as a precursor to a, a generalized seizure. And these are called auras. And these can range from things like an intense sensation of deja vu, strong smells, a sensation of sort of rising in the stomach and gut up to the heart. There's a wide range of things that come out of this. And occasionally, for our purposes, some of these have a mystical quality to them. Um, final bit of, of housekeeping, we use this term ictal. Ictal is simply the psychological state of having a seizure. Uh, this is useful for describing the timeline of a seizure, pre-ictal, right before, ictal, the stage itself, post-ictal, the immediate aftermath of a seizure, and periictal, between seizures. I think everyone's experts now, you feel like experts? I'm going to assume everyone got that, I think it'll be fine. So. Why, why do we know that, like, how do we know that these mystical experiences even exist? Well, there are, there's an interesting historical case in uh, Russian author Fodor Dostoevsky. There he is. Um, so uh, Dostoevsky lived from, uh, he was born in 1821, uh, died in 1881. He was a, a Russian author, Russian philosopher. Many of you probably know his work of Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov. Um, he also wrote a book called The Idiot. And in The Idiot, he has a central character, Prince Mishkin who is sort of the heroic, innocent figure of the novel, who has epilepsy, and part of his seizures involve these sort of euphoric transportations, this connection with the divine. Um, we have this example quote here, which I'll read to you. Is, the air was filled with a big noise, and I tried to move. I felt the heaven was going down upon the earth, and it engulfed me. I have really touched God. He came into myself. Yes, God exists, I cried. I don't remember anything else. You all, you healthy people, can't imagine the happiness we epileptics feel the second before a fit. 
Now what's interesting is this is not from the novel. This is Dostoevsky's explanation of his own epileptic experiences. Um, and he based that character on his own sensations. And this is a very intense uh, experience as you can imagine. And Dostoevsky does cite that this was a, a part of his writing of, of Christianity was influenced by his sensation and, and, and sort of personal knowledge that, that God was real from his subjective experience. Also interestingly, um, he, uh, he, he once commented that he would trade uh, 10 years of his life for 10 seconds of this sensation. So clearly a very powerful and meaningful thing to Dostoevsky. Um, that's great. Historical diagnoses are very challenging, as you might imagine. So what do we know from contemporary cases? What have we learned from these? We have a very lovely study uh, from uh, the Norwegian case here of 11 patients. Um, and this is in 2003. This is, at the moment, the largest case study on mystical experiences, though we're trying to beat the record uh, <laughs> working on it. Uh, I'm gonna present a few examples here from the patients they have. So we have a 41-year-old female who as part of her uh, epilepsy, she would have a strong urge to swallow, sort of repetitious swallowing, and she described this sensation of an intense sensation in the stomach as though she was a teenager helplessly in love. Sometimes she heard voices, uh, enjoyable and frightening at the same time. She also once was uh, singing in a church and uh, heard a voice of God come to her. But as an agnostic, she found this terrifying. She was worried her mental health was slipping. Um, we have a second case here of a 51-year-old uh, male um, who uh, described a, a change of concept of the surrounding world, a sense that reality was altering. Uh, he also described a telepathic communication with a divine power, and at times an erotic charge that would come in waves across his skin. Um, finally, we have a very interesting case of a woman who would have a sudden imagining of a uh, wise woman who would try to tell her her purpose in life. Uh, she could never really explain what it was, but was confident that it was involved with uh, saving children. Um, of interest in this case is that she was known at times to reduce her medication to kind of bring these seizures and these experiences about, which is not recommended, but it is something this patient did. So we see in those three cases that there are, there are right now, currently with you know, available medical data, cases in which these experiences are happening. However, in terms of what they mean for patients, it varies widely. Norway is a very secular country. As we saw in the case of the woman with the church experience, these are not interpreted as anything divine. These are interpreted as simple disease. Uh, what's interesting to, uh, for me in that context is that the cultural context matters a great deal, as we'll see here in the Karazana et al. case. Now, this is a case of five patients of Haitian descent, either born in Haiti or living in the Dominican Republic, but originally from Haiti who came through the, the Carizana et al. section seeking treatment for epilepsy. Uh, what's interesting is that, for example, case three here, a patient had what we would understand to be relatively straightforward focal seizures or a fear, that, that epigrastic sensation, coldness that we talked about, and they would utter sort of nonsense words, this just sort of babbling sensation. However, in the Haitian context, these are interpreted through the frame of voodoo, the most prominent religion uh, uh, of Haiti. Uh, so rather than going straight to a doctor, these sensations were treated by a local mambo or spiritual healer for the possession of an melachalo. Pardon my French pronunciation; it is not good. Um, so the, the melachalo spirit or loa uh, is understood to occasionally possess people and have them speak in languages they don't speak. And these nonsense utterings were assumed to be a foreign language. And so this person was treated by a spiritual healer for several, several years uh, with no success, and eventually brought to Miami 
when with treated with anti-epileptic drugs or AEDs, her seizures were reduced, uh, uh, though there are a couple of problems in her case with uh, medication compliance as well. In this case, because of family intervention. The family was not very comfortable with the drug she was taking. We have another case of this in which we have a patient with focal seizures that included the sensation of emptiness. She would feel empty inside her body, sometimes known as depersonalization. Not that strange uh, in focal epilepsy and temporal lobe, temporal lobe epilepsy. However, again, through the context of voodoo, this was seen as um, a voodoo curse of the sending of the dead, uh, and this was interpreted as uh, her good angel leaving her, her body as the spirit of death entered her. She also received, I think, something in the range of 10 years of spiritual treatment, with obviously no effect on, on her seizures. And eventually, uh, at, uh, I believe age 36, um, was treated with anti-epileptic drugs and it has good seizure control since. So this is, this is a long way to say that we know that these seizures are existing, they're rare, but they do happen. And we know that the cultural context in which these experiences are had matters a great deal to how people experience them, how they are treated, and how, what kind of treatments they seek. So in studying this, we wanted to do something different from the previous studies in that we wanted to have some controls and most importantly, I think, get longer in-depth interviews with patients and really understand their experiences, break down the timeline of their experiences, understand how it may have impacted their worldview, their lives, and really just get a sense of what these seizures are like. The data I presented to you are it realistically. We get about a paragraph, maybe two, describing patient auras. We sought to do better than that. So we've been doing pre-screen surveys in epilepsy clinics. We have 277 so far. These surveys are ongoing in three clinics. Uh, we have prior medical reports, which was an exhausting, exhausting 828 reports from the UCLH database. Um, and we have interviews with some of the patients we've identified. We have their medical data for analysis. And we have a large-scale survey that we're conducting with those uh, who've come through as well. Um, our current estimate is a prevalence is about 3%. And this is from the, the data I just talked about. We've discovered this is rarer than we even thought it was. Um, and bear in mind, this is 3% of temporal lobe epilepsy patients. With our big umbrella, we have epilepsy, and then we have focal epilepsy, then we have temporal lobe focus epilepsy. And in that subsection of a subsection, 3% seem to have these experiences. So it has made some of these numbers uh, small just by, by virtue of what we're studying, which is exciting, but also, as you can imagine, probably a, a challenge for us. Um, so I will be presenting on interview data, but before I do that, I'm going to bring Alistair back up to talk about some of the neurological data we have thus far. Great, Joseph. Thank you very much. So um, I'm going to show you some standard neurology data on two people, uh, and then you're going to hear a little bit more about their experiences from Joseph. So this is a 44-year-old lady, and uh, she's not present here today. Uh, so she's known to have temporal lobe epilepsy, that is to say it, her temporal lobe is malfiring. And what you can see from the dates there is that she's had a number of operations on her temporal lobe. So this is a very straightforward thing. If the temporal lobe is not working, it's causing seizures, you just take it away surgically. And I'll show you what that means. However, despite one or two operations, she was still having seizures and... Uh, EEG recordings, that is to say electrical recordings of her scalp, showed continued epileptic activity uh, in her brain. And so she went on and had a further big temporal lobe operation. And even that has not worked. She continues to have seizures. So this is someone with really bad epilepsy. So I'll show you in just a second. But thank you for holding me to account. 
Um, let's do that. So this is a brain, uh, or this is the same brain in slices. So if, if you want to look at this one just a second, those are two ears. That's the top and that's the bottom. Okay, so imagine me cut like that. And uh, that's the top of the brain. This is one hemisphere. That's the left hemisphere. This is the right hemisphere. And everything is symmetrical except for there. Do you see there's a big hole here where something should be? Does that, is that visible? Uh, and so this is the temporal lobe. And on this side, it's been cut away. And these are successive slices going forward. And you can see the extent of the surgery. So the temporal lobe is that part of the brain that is closest to the ear. Frontal lobe is here, occipital lobe is here, parietal lobe is here. So what we're suggesting, uh, or what other people have suggested, including Mr. Dostoevsky, is that mystical seizures originate from something wrong with this part of the brain. This particular person, and you're going to hear more about them, has continued seizures from the remaining part of her right temporal lobe even though a lot of it's been cut away. Okay? Yes. Oh. Right. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. Um, we didn't have your permission to announce who you were, so... You, you have. You have. Thank you for identifying yourself. And maybe you'll have things to tell us. Okay. So, uh, this is Mary. And you're going to hear a lot more about her later on. Uh, and this is to say that uh, this is the only comment about her seizures in her medical notes. Just one paragraph. And talk about being transported to exotic places. And I'm really saying that because this turns out to be a very inadequate description of her experiences. And so we neurologists are not great finding out the full extent of people's experiences. So uh, these are some EEG reports. So this, Mary, is when those wires are put on your head. And the idea is to identify uh, where the epileptic focus is. Where does the epilepsy originate from? And if you read the second paragraph, you see that there's some problem with the left frontal temporal lobe. That's here. And these bites over the right temporal lobe, so rather um, dispersed. And then here is Mary's brain, which I'll say focus away is normal to look at. We've got slightly different slices here. They're in the other direction. So those are two eyes there and nose. Ears would be here. And the cuts are like this, going up like this. And in this plane, the temporal lobe is this bit here on both sides going up, and if we had further scans, we'd see right to the top. But what I want you to see here is that everything is symmetrical. There's no big holes. There's nothing missing. This is an entirely normal brain. So you can have epilepsy with electrical activity arising from different parts of the brain as a disease, but the brain structure, at least at the level of the scan, is normal. And you can have epilepsy arising from a brain that's damaged with visible abnormality, and that gets cut out, <coughs> as in our previous case. So that's 
the neurologist's account of these two people. Great. Thank you, Alistair. Um, so as Alistair noted, uh, the case uh, descriptions can be rather small, brief. Um, and some of this makes good sense, actually. The concerns that many neurologists have are making sure that you can minimize seizures, you can make people treated well. And so sometimes these stories are not of clinical interest, even though they are very much of personal and psychological interest. So I'm going to present a bit of one of these interviews um, with a patient, uh, 54. Um, so patient 54 is a frequent focal and generalized seizures, uh, prone to cluster seizures. Uh, sometimes we'll have periods of three, four, five seizures a day. Um, frequent auras, especially during times of stress, sometimes anxiety. Uh, and many of these auras can be one of the ones we described previously, deja vu, jamais vu, the sense of knowing what's going to happen next. Uh, depersonalization, in this case, the sense of a, having a goldfish bowl placed on their head. <laughs> Um, sort of the, the world looking strange through that lens. Um, these seizures do often generalize, so you'll have the beginning in the focal and it'll, it'll cut across the brain. A long history of epilepsy uh, from childhood, and uh, I did a 47-minute interview on several topics relating to auras, um, questions such as, you know, what is this aura like? Could you describe the timeline? Questions of what these auras mean to this person's life. Um, so a, description, uh, a, a brief comment on coding. So some of this data is done uh, through qualitative research uh, just by virtue of what we're asking, what we're hoping to find out. And this is my training as a cultural psychologist comes into play here. So for what you're going to see in this case is we, uh, in conjunction with collaborator uh, Dr. Joanna Colicutt, have come up with some big codes that we think encompass the major themes of these interviews. And I'm going to present with you a couple of, of the big ones here today. So as you can see, we have the top 10 most used codes by percentage throughout the transcript. Um, protection, coping, and risk are, are big three here. We also have spirituality, conversations about mortality, transportation. The point to say here is that we are assigning the codes as we go through reads and then looking at percentages to see what are the big emergent themes that we, are, we should pay more attention to. Um, one of these themes is protection. So in the, in a reoccurring feature, and I'll read a quote in a second, is that the, the auras this person were having were protective in nature. They were something that allowed this person to get through from day to day. So we have here uh, me, the interviewer, great. This is at the beginning of the interview. So I'm going to start with a very blunt question, and we're going to talk about it as we go. But if, have you ever had an experience during seizure that you felt was mystical or spiritual in some way? Our respondent, I have particularly with my auras going into seizure, where I've actually felt that I've been taken outside of myself, that somebody's almost taking me and looking after me. I've seen lights, I've seen kinds of pathways almost, and it's if I've got to follow this light or I've got to be guided somehow. And whether that's getting me prepared for something that happens or just putting me in a, a safe space, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I step out of myself and that can be a safer situation looking back on myself. It's very weird to explain, but it's almost like I feel like I'm on stage which that part I can kind of relate to at the moment. Um, but as you can see in bold, you have all this language related to taking me out, looking after me, putting me in a safe place, a safer situation. And this theme is reoccurrent throughout the interview. We have several cases in which you have comments, something like, I suppose it's spiritual, but I think it's guiding. I think it's almost like a protective mechanism that's alerting me to something going on in my brain. And this is describing the aura itself. And the aura almost has a sense of agency in the way this is described. This is an external thing that is helping let this person know the seizure is coming and help them feel safe. 
Um, I think I'm being looked after. I've always believed that. I've had moments where I've nearly died and I feel like I've been stopped. And someone's looking after me, they're reaching out to me and saying, no, you're too young or it's too early and they're stopping me. And this is a, I, I highlight this quote to say this is an external agency. This is not someone feeling bolstered at their own state, but actually that there is something else consciously trying to keep them safe. Um, coping is a, second, a separate category entirely, and there's lots of examples of coping and, and managing hardship, but in this case, it is an external force. Um, and this last quote here, I knew it wasn't very well, but something deep inside of me, again, made me carry on. But it almost was like it wasn't me, like it was someone else helping me, just to reaffirm that previous point. Um, and another thing that came up a lot, and this is, I think, what the protection is from, is the risk. And there are a lot of risks associated with epilepsy. We've, Alistair has made mention of that. But this is a post-ictal description of, uh, I bite my tongue quite badly, I often hit my head, I've fallen, I may have to recuperate. Feel a bit out of sorts, I feel uh, a bit not the positive 54 that people see, perhaps more negative. Sometimes I get really scared as well, and I know that I've had bad seizures. I scream a lot, and I cry a lot. And bear in mind, as I stated before, that this is a frequent occurrence. This person has sometimes three, four seizures a day. And so for this to be a, a reoccurring feature of somebody's life is, is almost unimaginable for, I think, most of the people here, including myself. And so you see why having a protective sense, a sense of knowing that something is looking out for you, is an immense source of strength, given that the perils and the risks are so high. Um, also, I mentioned the, uh, the voodoo context and how cultural context can, can change the way these auras are experienced. This is a case of, uh, when I asked about religious history, this person was brought up in a very strict Catholic uh, community and found it very difficult because it was almost very, it was always very regimented. Uh, yeah. Uh, children were seen to be uh, seen but not heard. Um, and in this case, my grandmother thought that I was a witch because I had epilepsy. And I was treated quite badly by her. And it gave me a very skewed view of religion at that point because I was thinking, well, you go to church every week, but you think I'm a witch. And that story, I think, highlights how challenging it is for many people who have disability or some sort of reoccurring illness. Stigma has not reduced, <laughs> I mean, it has reduced a bit, but it's still very present. And in this case, with the, uh, with the intersection of disability stigma and this sort of mystical concern, you have an amplified effect of risk. So this is a very challenging circumstance. Thankfully, we have this other reoccurring theme of spirituality in which strength is found. This is sort of a rapid fire quote sequence I'm gonna to read to you. Um, so this is me. Right, so have the experiences changed the way you view the world? I think I'm much more, I don't know, resilient and open and I don't judge. I try not to judge people. I try to give people a second chance. I try to see people for who they are as opposed to what they've been told. Um, and so, that, sorry, this is two quotes. Um, so what we have here is, um, I, I thought, a very wonderfully succinct way of describing how these other themes intersect. This is somebody who has become very resilient because of these experiences that have been reassured by her experiences, sorry, her. Um, this is somebody who also has felt the, the pressure of stigma and I think has grown to to pause and see that the things that you see on the surface are not representative of the things the person is actually experiencing. And I think it's a very wonderful way to summarize a spirituality that is impacted by those two forces. Uh, a second quote for you here is, uh, I've got the, this is about uh, church life. I've got the opportunity to choose if I go to a church and I go go to a church and I get off very well with the vicar and the vicar's wife and his children. I know people are there and I don't go every week, but I'm quite a spiritual person and I do believe that there is something I don't know what it is, but I believe there is something there that looks after people and that helps people. To which I asked, do you think you've contacted that thing? 
I think so, they respond. I think I had this out-of-body experience when I had my first brain operation, that something happened in the operation. I remember it was almost like I came out of myself and I was actually observing myself. Yeah, I think that for me, that changed me. And I think this is a really clear case in which the, the auras and the, the relationship of these experiences to epilepsy was a driving force for the emergent spirituality this person talks about and their, their gradual mature spirituality. And I think it's really, it, 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 this is the closest so far I think we've gotten to the, the true Dostoevsky style experience where the auras were a reaffirmation of the spiritual world in some capacity. And I think it, it, the rest of this interview is, is frankly very beautiful. But I think this is a very clear case in which the, 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 the auras themselves are understood to be part of the spiritual world and that there is a good force looking out for this person. Um, so we've talked about previous experiences. We've talked about the historical experiences. I think now is a good time to talk about experiences right now. So if I could, you could all please join me. I'd like to invite Mary to the stage. First of all, Mary, thank you so much thank again for so taking kind. the time to talk to us. I know that's it's not the easiest thing in the world, and I think I, I appreciate it. I think we all appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. So I wanted to ask just very broadly, um, could you describe one experience uh, that sort of had a mystical or unusual okay. quality to it? Um, I'm going to talk about one experience that I've not ever mentioned before because um, I was too frightened to um, talk about it and tell anybody because... I was driving, um, and it was before I had a seizure, um, and it was an aura, and I had, uh, I was in the car, and I got onto the M11 um, from London, and <coughs> I was driving, and the next thing I knew, I was near the... Um, Bishop Stalford services, um, and I obviously had control of the car. I was still in the right lane, but um, I had no recollection of how I'd got there. Um, I had, n I knew where I'd been because I'd always visited the same place in my auras. Um, I've had the same auras for at least about, probably for about five years, but um, never realized what was actually wrong with me. Um, so obviously when I got to Bishop Stalford, I sort of pulled over, had a bit of a panic, um, and thought what I could have actually had done. I could have caught a caused a huge accident. Um, Could you describe the aura for us? Um, <clears throat> I always go, well, I always did, <laughs> used to go to middle, a Middle Eastern country. Um, I always used to visit a group of ladies 
I always called them my ladies. They always needed me. Um, they were always around a river or like a pond. It was always very hot. Um, and um, I would just always try and find them and try and help them. And I would just try and that was kind of how eventually how I, as much as I would get to, but it'd be the same thing over and over again. It would be very pleasurable, it would be wonderful, and I would feel like I was there for about at least two, three days, and I was probably gone sometimes five minutes, maybe 20 minutes, or sometimes I was at a dining room table with my daughter and my mother, and maybe I was two minutes and on one occasion tried to speak a for foreign language backwards and was very, very upset because I had to leave them. But I always went to the same place and I always tried to find them and almost tried to help them or rescue them, or, but it was always like a Middle Eastern country. And how would you feel after when you came out of these auras? I was very upset, very cold, very, very emotional, quite panicky. Um, I was left quite disturbed. And um, how, how do you think these, these auras have changed the way you think about your life? Um, well, them a lot. <coughs> I miss seeing, I've always called them like my ladies. I remember I said to you, I yeah. miss seeing my ladies. You did. Um, I'm grateful every day. I always wake up every day. I'm very thankful that I'm alive and I haven't had a seizure or an aura every day. I'm very grateful. Uh, it's um, been about uh, over a year now since you've had a seizure. It's over a year. Um, and I miss that amazing sort of crossover feeling of the aura. I just, I just really deeply miss that feeling, and I know I'll never get it back. Um, and I don't know um, how or what it was, but um, yeah. But I'm always very, I, I am a quite a spiritual person. Um, but um, to have that same um, feeling for so many years, and it was such a regular basis. Yeah. And, and did you, were you ever religious growing up? Or did you find religion um, at some point? In your my life? parents were Jewish and not very religious. But um, I've always had very sort of, um, spiritual background myself. I've always, um, I have lots of beautiful religious, I like religious objects, so I have lots of different religious symbols around my home, all different religions. Um, but um, I don't know why I went to this sort of Middle Eastern country. 
the women weren't English. It was very hot. Um, but it was just bizarre. Yeah. Um, and so y these auras happened for quite some time before you actually were diagnosed with epilepsy. Yeah. Um, I'd say at least, at least, I remember when I was in the States once and my daughter, um, I'd say at least 10 years that I can remember. But I didn't know what they were. I couldn't tell anyone because I thought they'd think I was mental. I remember once I went to um, um, a neurologist because I had my, used to suffer from migraine and I used to explain about some sort of, sort of weird deja vu feeling I used to have. And um, I tried to explain it once to somebody. I was telling Professor Caldera and he was recommending that I have some therapy for some, but I remember at least, at least 10 years of, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to add or, or tell no. the audience here today? No, but I'm very, very pleased to be able to share, to let people know, and to actually have a title that it is an aura. Yeah. <laughs> because to hold that in, and to have it for so many years, um, and especially the driving one, because it was incredibly scary. Yeah. Um, and um, obviously I stopped driving for a year, you know, uh, once I was diagnosed with epilepsy, after I actually had a, 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 a seizure, uh, you know, a thought seizure. Convulsions. Yeah, convulsions. Convulsions, yeah. Um, because obviously I, ha I hadn't had a convulsion before, right. so it took a long time to get up to a convulsion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. And you're driving now. And I'm back driving after <laughs> a year, yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Legally. 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 <laughs> Legally. Yeah. Legally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Your car is just outside. I don't want anyone to no. panic. No. Yeah. No. No. They see no. you Perfectly no. safe. No. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. Let's just take a pause there and then we'll come back to Mary. So um, what we hope we'd achieve by this stage is to briefly outline what epilepsy is and to make the point that in a very, very small proportion of people whose epilepsy comes from the temporal lobe, uh, the seizures themselves seem to have a special quality. And we've given them various names, so mystical seizures, we said. <coughs> we talked about spirituality and religion. And perhaps you might want to interrogate whether these truly are mystical or spiritual or religious. But we wanted to get across to you the rich experience of having these seizures and how they are a mixture of pleasurable and frightening, how they're something that people yearn for and yet don't want, um, and how this is mixed up in the way they lead their lives. So that's the impression we wanted to get across. Please give Mary a round of applause oh, for yes, sharing sir. her story. Sir, is, is this condition a family one? I mean, no. your parents or your daughter? No one in my family at all has any. So it's absolutely unpredictable. Uh, would it have helped, do you think, if it wasn't and you could discuss it with a parent or daughter? Or do you? No. Or rather than coping it with yourself? Mm, no. Oh, sorry. No, no. Um, no, I was too embarrassed, really, because I, yeah. I didn't know what the auras were. 
at the time because when you have one and you and you sort of experience it and then you sort of take reality of what what just happened you're not quite aware mm -hmm. so you don't really know exactly what happened so it's very hard to understand so you can't really discuss it it's a very unique experience and it would be very common <coughs> for people to start discussing it and then be told by their doctor that this is psychiatric or psychological yeah. and sent to a psychiatrist, which isn't a great option <coughs> in this situation. So yeah. thank you for raising that. There's a, a gentleman at the back and then a lady at the front. Thank you. Um, thanks, Monica, for sharing your experience. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned things like you had a sensation of very hot, but then start thinking about other sensory impressions you may have had. You know, does it dream like in the sense that you wait, you come up, you emerge from it, and you have a vague recollection? Were there particular sensory details that you remember that were aura? Um, there were. Yes, I do remember. I re I remembered all the details. Um, for instance, example, I like I remember the, the sand. Is that what you mean? Yes, I remember the water, the feel of the water, the sand, um, <coughs> um, and smells. Um, I always had a very strong sense of smell. Can you describe them? Um, <laughs> describe smells, but... Uh, um, no, I wouldn't be able to now. Mary, sometimes but people talk about burning smells or... Smells of slightly mouldy stuff. Um, Did you ever have that? No, no. But um, not that I not that I can remember now. But um, just the the smell, the heat. Um, um, no, I wouldn't be able to remember now. But I always knew it was really nice. Yeah. Now let's ask the gentleman why he's asking that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, it goes well. I, I also had. Um, well, I, I'm coming off Keppra now. I've had epilepsy mm -hmm. for about eight years, but it, my thinking went into it from brain channeling, and, and I had very profound what I would call mystical experiences at the beginning. Um, Don't leave. We should talk later, yeah. Don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, which were definitely life-changing experiences, but they weren't, they weren't th this kind of... This, I never had any kind of experience like that. Um, it, it was much more abstract and difficult yeah. to define as I feel them. But this is interesting to me because it's so... Yes, mine were. Mine were the same all the time as well. I always went back to see the same ladies all the time and the same place. Thank you for that question. Be in touch. Uh, there's a lady who's been very patient here, and then we'll come to this side of the room. There's a young gentleman there who's going to have next. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm assuming from what you said about it happening when you were driving, that when you had an aura, you were you were completely absorbed by it. You were unaware of reality. You yes. Just, it was like being in a dream where you were just totally unaware of what was happening. Yes. In the sort of real world, as it were. Yes. Yes, I didn't. I had no recollection of um, where I was on the road at all. So. Or, or how much time was actually passing? Or. Um, well. I'd say at least 10 minutes of the motorway because I must have been doing 70 miles an hour. 
So from where I was on the M11 to getting to Bishop Stalkwood. So but she probably drove quite safely. Yeah, well um, yeah but I mean it's clear that she was completely absorbed by I was the totally absorbed. And, and totally unaware of anything yeah. else. But there's this yeah. interesting dissociation between being able to do routine stuff yeah. and yet being absorbed, which is Everybody a good word. Everybody must experience it's sometimes on the roads that you yes. think, I don't remember turning there. Yeah. 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 No. Great, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Could we go to this young man over here? We, we, we're, we're doing the ageist <laughs> in favour of youth. Have you had an experience with the Middle East before in your life? Because okay, I so wonder if the seizures or uh, convulsions are to do with past experiences. Of so that's a really big question. Yes. We'll ask Mary in a second, but behind your question is the idea, is Mary reliving something she's already experienced or is elaborating on something she's yeah. already experienced or is this something entirely new? Hmm. No. I've only ever been, I went to Egypt once, a long, long time ago, but I've never ever been to anywhere like that I've experienced in my auras. And the scene with the ladies, was that anything like something you've ever seen before no. or a picture? No. It's entirely new. No, yeah. this was more like to do with like a past or something to do with like a, from a war zone or this was, they were in these ladies were in distress. They, they needed me for something. Yeah. So if a person had no, like, hadn't experienced anything in their life, theoretically, and they had this type of epilepsy, what would they experience? It's a very theoretical question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a typical Cambridge question. It is, it is very much so. Um, well, I mean, so a couple possible accounts of this. So one is that, you know, well, you know, uh, you haven't been to the place you're describing, these are things that, images that may have occurred in some form or another. I think everyone can picture a desert with a small pool of water. These concepts are not unknown. And so when you have unpredictable firings in the area of the brain that can make you imagine that scene, you could have stereotypical firings that produce that image over and over again. Granted, our problem with that is that we can't, as Alistair noted, observe those neurons firing. We can't do it that way. So there are ways to get to an experience you maybe haven't personally had without having to have it, but it's not clear as to the precise mechanism of it, unfortunately. Um, can we, someone over this side, just to show our allegiance lady there with her hand? Hi, um, thank you for sharing. My question is a bit more, um, I mean, are there any reports um, regarding um, mystical experience, but on the bad side, like uh, being threatened by um, uh, some sort of forces or, um, I mean, in the negative side of it. So Mary, please don't answer <laughs> that yourself, Joe. Uh, yes, so we have, so one of the things I didn't get to get to is uh, Saint Brigitta of Sweden, actually one of the six patron saints of Europe. So she, she was a, a, a Catholic saint who had a lot of big revelationary experiences in her time, but also did describe <laughs> some very terrifying experiences, uh, accompanying the, the sudden visions of uh, the Virgin Mary would be the scent, scent of sulfur that Alistair described in very vivid visions of hell. So that was a very terrifying experience for her. And initially her experiences were so sort of terrible and, and distressful that she took them to a priest to say, I think I'm being visited by the devil. And it was only through consultation that she came to see them as 
as more positive than that. So there's definitely cases of that. In the voodoo context, these experiences are very scary for people. There's one uh, in which a person would have uh, what are known as drop seizures. They would suddenly just lose consciousness and fall flat um, and happen to do so in a fire. And as though that's not bad enough, this is another Loa matchup where it comes with a spiritual story of a Loa who had forced people to throw themselves into fires. So then there came all the spiritual treatments alongside that. So this, this is by no stretch only a positive experience. There's a lot of very potentially terrifying things that can be happening in epilepsy as well. Thank you. So what I'm going to suggest now is that we collect up two or three questions so people have a chance, and then we'll respond uh, towards the end. So which way would you go? Um, has anybody ever experienced uh, an aura without having the convulsion afterwards in, in whatever form? Oh, yes. So that would be routine. Yeah. Oh. Routine. And that would be your... Yes. All, all my auras. I didn't have a convulsion with my auras. Which I is why they go un unrecognized as epilepsy often, because it's just <coughs> such an unusual thing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, question here. Yes. Comments, please. Um, please use the microphone. microphone. <laughs> I should say we, we, are, we are recording this, but if you've asked a question and would prefer not to be, that not to be known publicly, then please speak at the back with the gentleman in red, and you can be deleted from the recording. <laughs> Hello. Um, <laughs> Are there any experiences of, uh, of traveling beyond the Earth into the cosmos or connecting with, um, so, it's not, it, so it's not a connection to people or experiences with people or situations with people, but more uh, out of space? That's uh, a really good question. Thank you for that. Let's collect we'll another couple. We'll come to that one, sure. Um, I, I'm just wondering if there could be perhaps a psychoanalytic angle that's useful here. Perhaps auras are a bringing to consciousness of normally unconscious or subconscious mind contents, as, as Freud would have it. I, I don't know if that's been explored in the literature at all. Yes, but interesting. We'll come back to that. Thank you. Uh, and then one more over here, and then we'll s one more lady very persistent over there, and then we'll... Uh, thank you. I have a question for Professor Ranj. Uh, um, so I was wondering if uh, in the small fraction of people who have these mystical uh, experiences, do you ha know anything more about these people, especially uh, related to gender or other differences? Yeah, thank you. So is there anything there that already? And would you mind running to that lady in purple <laughs> who's being terribly <coughs> patient with us? And then we'll pause and respond to these. Jotting them down. We will get to everybody. So we've got, <laughs> I've got one in there. Good. So this is a follow-up from one of the previous questions. Um, so in nowadays, we're all kind of acquainted with concepts, well, places such as the Middle East and television. We don't necessarily need to have gone there. But are there any historical accounts of people having those kind of visions before they'd be acquainted with them? Yeah. So having special access, very has anyone gone to the cosmos? Has anyone gone to places that they couldn't possibly have known about, Georgie? Uh, cosmos specifically, no. So far, I've only, uh, well, I, I should hedge that a little bit. So there's nothing involving things like space. No one's going to the stars from what we've found so far. Um, in relation to the historical accounts of special knowledge, um, unless anyone in here has specifically been to hell, I think that qualifies. Um, so there definitely are some of these that have these very, like, you know, Dostoevsky's connection with heaven is definitely not of a specific person or memory. So some of these things are occurring in that manner. 
But we definitely have anything like, like, like space has not been a feature of anything we've seen so far. Um, if that sort of answers your question. Yeah. So I, I think the trouble with trying to find a case in which they'd have special access is that for the most part, it would be hard to describe if someone had had it. And there are cases of ineffability where people just can't describe the sensation they're feeling. They struggle to put words to it. Um, so it, it, I, I don't really know of any cases of, of something that's totally out of the ordinary. I've seen, it usually integrates things about someone's life. But then again, we have cases where people say, I could, I, it was weird and I couldn't tell you what it was. And they, those might be candidates, but of course we can't access them because they have no words to put them to. Yeah, and what about any baseline features, male, age, anything like that? Um, not really, no. We've seen lots of ranges. Um, so a lot of the cases were uh, of, the, of the Haiti study were 30 to 50. In the Norwegian study, it was about that same age. Um, but many of these experiences started when people were younger. Definitely in the case of uh, St. Brigida, she started having them at age seven. So like, you, there, there's no age demographic difference. I don't think there's been much of a gender demographic difference, apart from the fact that older studies talk more about men than newer studies do, which I think has more to do with sort of changing norms of what questions get asked to who than it does with any meaningful medical demographics. Uh, I think that's all the demographic things. Does that cover a range of what you're looking for? So okay. I've, I've got a question for both of you. So this is actually the key question of our, of our research, of Joseph's research. So, and it sort of speaks to that question and this question over here. So there are two op options, I think, number one and number two. Number one option is that people who have these experiences are having all the same <coughs> thing, and it's actually very vague and difficult to describe, and are layering on from their past experiences some way of describing. So they're, they're grabbing memories or ideas or pictures to try and make sense of it. That's number one option. Number two option is that this is all completely distinct and special for each individual person. And um, it's really heaven, really hell, really the Middle East. And that's particular to an individual and hasn't necessarily been experienced before. Which would you go for? Um, what, my Middle East? Yeah. <laughs> so, it's yeah. so that, for you, is a very real thing. Yeah, it is very real. And it hasn't yeah. been experienced by you before. It's only there in the context of your story. Yeah, it's, yeah. Good. I, I'm inclined towards the particularist take as well. I think, it, given the just the wide variety of accounts that we've had, um, it, it, it seems very unlikely that everybody's elaborating upon one sort of general feeling, especially because imagery can be very specific. A uh, case we didn't get to talk about is a study from Japan in which you have a very particular description by one of the people of the sutras coming down on a cloud in two hands, and then a revelation of, all, of a new religion in which all world religions were subsumed within it. That's a very particular experience and is something I don't think you'd see outside of a Japanese context, frankly. Um, so I don't, I don't think that that's just a general sense of weirdness that's getting elaborated upon. I think that is something very specific to that person. Um, it, I definitely think there's cultural mediation. I think people think through the cultural histories they're born into. I think we all do that. But I don't think that it's only elaboration and attribution. That prompted questions. This lady is dying to speak. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. 
you know the the remake, and I'm really bad with names, but the remake of the Carl Sagan Cosmos. Sure, with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's right, with Neil. Uh, there is in the first episode, he talks about um, a saint in several centuries ago, who had epileptic attacks and would pass out and would travel hmm. beyond. I think that's Teresa. Oh, male, sure, male. sure, sure. Oh, really? He had a beard. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to go watch the first episode of Cosmos then. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the, w the one thing I will caution with historical diagnoses is they can be very challenging. I mean, people have made claims on uh, St. Paul on the road to Damascus, on Muhammad, on Joseph Smith, and the, like, these are not very clear-cut cases of epilepsy. These are usually based on one, one passage of one description of something. I, I feel more comfortable with Dostoevsky because he had a, a doctor who said you have epilepsy to him, and the only reason I feel good about Saint Brigida is because Mary Lampalum, who's a uh, sorry Anne Marie Lampalum, who's a Swedish neurologist, did a very extensive study, including finding a part of her skull and looking at indentations that suggest a tumor. So that's a pretty unique historical case. I think most historical cases we should be extremely cautious with. Um, it seems to me like there's at least a partial overlap between the kinds of experiences you you've all been talking about in connection with epilepsy and other experiences people have when their brain is put into an unusual state in other ways mm. by drugs or meditation or near-death experiences. Um, do you think any of those shed light on each other? Yes, I do. Um, and actually <coughs> the most common neurological disease that mimics some of this is migraine. And if you talk to someone who has frequent migraine, you know, a small proportion of them will have very unusual experiences sort of akin to this. Um, my own feeling as a neurologist, obviously, is that all of these various insults to the brain may be provoking similar experiences because they are, in, they are inhibiting or they're facilitating particular pathways. Thank you. Lady in white, very keen. We just have two minutes, folks, so uh, we're going to be wrapping up shortly. This is just perhaps an extension of what you've what you've just said, and I'm um, aware that a lot of the focus has been on the personal individual experience. But I'd yeah. love to kind of to, re to return to the neurology part of it as well, yeah. and that we know that the temporal lobe is associated with things like memory, um, language, and things like that. So, from the neurological perspective, um, I guess are there other theories uh, out there about specific? misfirings and how that is then affecting the interpretation of what's going on? So you'll read in neurology textbooks that in the temporal lobe is the apparatus, the machinery for experiencing the numinous, the godlike, the divine. Uh, but the only evidence for that comes from talking to people like Mary. There is no other evidence. So if you try and stimulate the temporal lobe with an electrode during an operation, you never get these experiences described. So I'm sort of coming back to saying that actually all we neurologists know is from people like Mary telling us. So any <coughs> final comments? Uh, well, I think yeah, we should give absolutely. Yeah. So just at the front here. And then we're going to wrap up, folks. Can I just say that I'm very similar to Mary with my experiences, but I always have the same experience, sort of goldfish bowl and feeling like I'm looking, everything gets very heightened, I get a lot of noise, I get a lot of stimulus, but I people can talk to me and I can respond, 
but I don't understand what they're talking to me about. So everything looks like it's garbled. And then the feeling of kind of being dissociated and looking down on myself. Since the third brain operation <laughs> last year, I've lost some of my visual memory and I've actually lost some of the capacity to actually remember now my auras, which I find quite frustrating <laughs> because it's, um, I don't always know that I'm going to have a seizure because now I don't have a, an, a warning or I probably am having the warnings and other people are seeing them, but I'm actually not realising they're actually telling me that I might have a seizure. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So uh, I'm going to ask Joseph and Mary in a second if they want to have any concluding remarks. just want to say one thing is that uh, what we've described here is some mystical spiritual experiences with epilepsy. And a question that no one's asked but should be in your mind is, well, does that mean that all religious and spiritual experiences are epilepsy? Um, and that has been studied. So uh, there have been small series of taking people who describe themselves as religious or spiritual and doing EEGs to pick up any epileptic activity, and none have been found. So I don't want you to leave here thinking that we've any way um, downgraded or neutralized or um, subverted the idea that people can have authentic spiritual or religious experiences. So, um, Joseph. Anything that we've missed out that you feel people should know? Um, I, I think we've been relatively comprehensive. <coughs> I think people have had very good questions, and I thank you for those. Um, I what would about absorption? Absorption. I wasn't going to get to absorption, but we can talk about it. Uh, so sure, I brief, brief. Brief, very brief. I believe you had said the word absorbed into, and that's shockingly fortuitous for this study. We have a sort of an emerging pet theory hypothesis that there's a, a psychological absorption, which is a, a psychological trait of the capacity to stare at a piece of art for an hour and lose your sense of time, looking at the clouds and being wholly taken by how beautiful they are. That sort of sensation um, has been shown to be associated with people who describe very vivid prayer, very intense uh, feelings of having God communicate with them. That's worked by Tanya Lerman, an anthropologist um, at Stanford now. Um, and so we have been giving the absorption scale um, to a few people. Um, Mary is one of them. Uh, actually, our, our, our person up front here is another one. Um, so far, we've seen very high absorption scores, which is a promising uh, lead for hypothesis. But I didn't present survey data because we still have a relatively low sample, and so I don't want to make claims about that data set yet. But absorption is, is something we are looking at as a very potentially interesting uh, association with these, with these experiences. I didn't want the evening to go by without you coming. <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, so Mary, anything we've missed out that you feel folks um, should know? No, not, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so can I thank you particularly and our involuntary <laughs> guest? Um, it is a very brave thing to come up in front of people and talk about experiences which you kept private mm. for many, many years because you were embarrassed about them. So. With that in mind, would you please give uh, Mary a <laughs> Please come back next year. <laughs> Thank you.